that uh, we would uh, that we would be uh, testifiers of that which is true. Lead us, Father, into being uh, examples of Christ in us, who's to be the hope of glory in Christ's name. Amen. These verses are really, really interesting because if you are a, a, a student of the Bible, you can find yourself confused by some of these verses. So I'm hoping today that we can uh, look at these and, and extract the, the, the truth, the, the, the juices from the truth that are here. But uh, so as we read these verses, uh, you know, keep in mind here that according to Paul, just take what Paul has at face value. According to Paul, it says uh, that all have sinned from Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned. You all believe that, right? All of us have sinned. And also he says in, verse, in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 that, that there is none righteous. So we have two truths already. First of all, that all of us are sinners. And secondly, that none of us are righteous. And then he says that even those who have been given the oracles of God, Romans 3, 2, that is the Jews, they have no excuse for their judgment and for their sin, Romans 2, 1. Therefore, in verse 12 of today's text, it is to be understood that whether a person is under the law that means whether they are a Jewish person who has been given the oracles of God and they are to, they are to do according to the word of that law, or they are without the law, that is, that these people have no idea what the law of God is, that they before God, in either case, stand condemned. Now, that's just a plain, simple truth of it. So, in essence, he's saying whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, knowledgeable of the law or not knowledgeable of the law, that you without Christ all stand condemned. When Paul speaks of the law, he is addressing the idea that the law of God was to both speak as to what a person was directed to do. So the law tells you what to do, but the law does something else in the second place. The law tells you not only what you're to do, but the law secondly examines that person as to what he or she did do. So it is, here's the law, here's what you are to do, and here's the law, did you do it? And that's what the law does. It does not justify a person. It just simply says, for example, let me give you a good example, and I, I like to use highway examples. Uh, there, is a, there is a law that says uh, 60 miles an hour. If you're coming up, if you're coming up 270 and you're going to take McDonald Boulevard and it says 60 miles an hour, you're crazy if you're going to do 60 because people will run you over. But that's what the law says. 60 miles an hour. The law never goes, oh man, look, a person's driving 60 miles an hour. Because if the law is going, wow, what a great person. The people are tooting their horns. Like, you're crazy. Where'd you get your driver's license? Because everybody else is doing 75 and 80. But the law only, only does this. It tells you when you're doing wrong. Are you doing the right thing? If you're not doing the right thing, then you're doing wrong. That's the law. 60 miles per hour. But I'm going to tell you, most people break that law, don't they? 
And isn't it amazing that God has given us a law to follow, and yet at the same time, we break those laws. We just do it. The people were to keep, the Jews were to keep that law of God, both to know it and to do it, they had to do so perfectly. That which was prescribed in the law was to be done perfectly. Now, as for the Gentiles, they were to do all that which they knew to do according, not to the law. They were to do all that they were supposed to do according to what? According to the light of nature that they had. And how do we know that? Because we read that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and verse 32. That they have been given this light of nature, and because they have this light of nature, verses 20 and 32, they are to do exactly what the, the, the moral instinct tells them to do. That was their requirement. So then, how does this, any of this apply to you and I today? Because a person possesses knowledge of the law or God, or in our case, we possess knowledge of the Word of God, it does not mean that we are or they are exempt from judgment. Because you possess the Word of God, because you come to church, because you come to Sunday school, because you hold a position in church, because you are a member of this church, because you've been baptized or anything else, does not mean that you are exempt from judgment. I want to tell you something, that all those things, whether you're baptized or whether you teach a class or whether you're on staff or whether you're the pastor or whether you're a deacon or anything else, any of those things, all of those things are what? They are works that we do. None of those things saves you. None of them. You can sit here week after week and hear the Word of God and know the Word of God and teach the Word of God and you can be lost. We read in Deuteronomy 6, 6, listen, Deuteronomy 6, 6, way back in the Old Testament, it says, these words which I am, this is the Lord speaking, these words which I am commanding you today shall be, are you ready for this? In your heart, in your heart. This then leads us straight to verse 13. And look at verse 13 of our text where it says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. Not the person who hears or the person who possesses the law, but the doers of the law will be justified. I want to ask you, who is the doer of the law? Was there anybody, anybody in the Old Testament a doer of the law? Nobody. You know why? Because they're all a bunch of sinners. The law demands you do it perfectly. Perfectly. Now then, in verse 13, do you see where it says, the, it gives us the word just, or you might have justified? It means that a person is to act and do perfectly perfectly, not excellently, not, a, not an A minus person, not a B plus person, or in, in some cases a, a D minus, not, listen, perfectly in what is right and just without any misstep or error. 
that the law prescribes for the person who has the law that you must, without any misstep, any misstep whatsoever, without any mistake, without any error, you must do so perfectly. You know, we were talking about baseball earlier. You know, they, they, they give the, the, the gold glove award, award at, the, at the end of the year to players who are really, really good at fielding a baseball. But you know what? None of them is 100%. I mean, you know, even the best player makes an error. But they still give them a gold glove award. Well, God doesn't give a gold glove award for these people. If you mess up one time, one time, you're out. Forget the award. God himself, God himself, who is perfect and just, God who is perfect and just adheres to this same standard. In John chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus prays this, O righteous Father. That means when he says, Father, you're righteous, it means that God, you're perfect in every way. He's absolutely righteous. In 1 John 1, 9, you are familiar with 1 John 1, because as we are sinners, we, we mention that all the time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That God is righteous, God is just, God is perfect. Have you ever given thought as to how God can be just? And at the same time, listen, if God is just, then why can, how can God be just and at the same time forgive you or forgive me? If God forgives somebody for a misstep in their life, is God being just? Can God be righteous if he forgives somebody? When somebody was wrong, he says, well, I forgive you. Can God still be just? That's the question. Let me ask you. If the Gentiles are without the law, then what do we do in regard to the matter of sin? If the Gentiles are without the law, then what do we do in regard to the matter of sin? I ask this because the Bible says in Romans 4.15, where there is no law, there is no violation. Am I hearing this right? Have you ever thought about that? That one time God condemns them? And then he says, well, there's no law, there's no violation. And then all of a sudden he says, well, you're going to be guilty anyway. Have we, are we facing some kind of conundrum over here that we can't figure this out? Where there's no law, there's no violation. Please take note of the word instinctively. Uh, in verse 14... You may not have the word instinctively. He says, for in the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively. You have by nature, maybe you have by nature in there. It's the same thing. So it's either instinctively or by nature in your, in your scripture there. But 
what the Gentiles, what the Gentiles who are without the law do by nature or instinctively, then becomes a law to them. Before you were a Christian, before you became a Christian, did you know it was wrong to steal? Did you know it was wrong to kill? Did you know it was wrong to commit adultery? Did you know it was wrong to be angry? Did you know it was wrong to use God's name in vain? Did you know those things were wrong? I bet you did. But if I were a betting man, which I am not, but if I did wager things, I would say that even though, even though we knew those things were wrong, that we may have done some of those very things. That even though instinctively or by nature we knew something was wrong, there was something in us that says, I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. Then it becomes a sin to you. Because you have the light of nature. There is something that is morally speaking to you in your conscience, in your mind. Something that is addressing your mind. It says, this is not the right thing to do. But you do it anyway. Then it is to your own condemnation. The Gentiles have both a sense of what is right to them morally, and also they have within them the working of conscience. This leads them to do what they would think to be good as opposed to what they thought to be bad or evil. These senses of right or wrong do as verse 15 states. He says, alternately, they will accuse you of, or, or defend you. So the sense that you had even before you're a Christian, your mind tells you this is wrong, and if you do what is wrong, then it accuses you. If you do what is right, it defends you. I'm doing the right thing. It defends you. You're, you're constant. Somebody else can accuse you, but your own mind, because you know that you did or did not do what you're supposed to do or not do, you did the right thing, your mind tells you that I am guiltless. Or I am guilty. You don't need a judge nor court to convict you. Your own mind convicts you of it. Either defends you or convicts you. Now look at verse 16. It says, on that day. When, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The day when God will judge the secrets of men is that day spoken of in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. Listen to what Paul says. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous, the righteous judgment of God. I asked a question earlier. How can God, who is just, a God who is right, 
a God who is holy, a God who never makes a misstep, how can God forgive you when you sin, when you commit an evil, and God says, I'm going to dismiss that from you, then how could God be just in doing that? Because a just person, a just person would not allow an injustice to occur. Now, we see injustices occurring in in society all the time. There's all kinds of injustice. And, and And we sometimes protest against those injustices. But we cannot take a person who is guilty and applaud him or her for doing good. It's wrong. God, who looks at your life and you do wrong, then God says to you, I forgive you. It does not, it does not eliminate the injustice, does it? Or does it? You understand the, the conundrum we have over here? That God is saying, it's okay, I forgive you. When they're crucifying Jesus, perfect in every way, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. How can God forgive an injustice? You want the answer? By punishing the one who is just and has taken our place. You all understand that. That in order for God to forgive your sin and your sin and your sin and my sin, God had to punish somebody that was thoroughly thoroughly just, who never took a misstep in his life. God had to punish him and put him to death in your place. So now when God says, I forgive you, he's able to do so because what you did has been paid for by somebody else. That's why God can be just in forgiving you. I had a person foolishly, foolishly, foolishly say one time, tell this person was a was a a high-ranking member in his church of his denomination. I will not tell you what denomination, I'll not tell you the person's name. But he says, Jesus did not have to die. All he had to do was just snap his fingers and we could all have been forgiven. Oh God help us. God help, is that all that God had to do was just snap his fingers? Then God would certainly be unjust if he would forgive us for our sins. If all he had to do was just snap his fingers. If there, if there is not a, a judgment and condemnation for sin, then how could we ever survive? That Jesus didn't have to die, that God had to just take some verbal action. I trust that you know your scripture better than that. It was the Jewish religious leaders 
who thought and taught that by privilege, by privilege, they possessed the law. But listen, it was not because they neither had nor heard the law that would ultimately save them. If you have the law, if you are, listen, if you were a Jewish person and you were a leader, you're one of those Jewish doctors, you know, a doctor of theology, and you had the law and you knew the law, then you would also have known that that law cannot save you. Why could it not save you? Because there is no human being apart from Jesus Christ who was able to keep that law. It was required that they live up to the standards of, it was required that they lived up to the standards of the law. Jesus in Matthew 5, 20 says, listen to what Jesus says. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They thought themselves to be righteous. Why? Because, I don't know, picture this in your heads. This, this right here is the law. This right here is the law. In, the, in these two hands of mine, this is the law. What they did is they built a hedge around that law and made it this big. What they kept was not this. What they kept was outside of this. They, they invented their own standard. Because when God says, when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, then they, they interpreted to keep holy, meaning that, listen, ladies, you could not pluck out a white hair out of your head on a Sabbath day. Well, God's word never said that, but they didn't want to violate, not worried about this, they were worried about this, because they built this great big hedge around this. This is God's law. This is their laws. You couldn't carry more than a fig's weight, more than 3,000 feet on a Sabbath day. You could not cut down a mushroom on a Sabbath day because you would violate the law of sowing and reaping and other stupid things like that. You can't do any of those things. They kept that, and because they kept their own standards, but not God's standard, they said, well, Aren't we wonderful? But Jesus says, unless, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a key verse, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20. That's a key verse because that whole sermon is written all around that verse. It tells us how we can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We can hardly apply this same thought to you and I today. Oh, we, we can't apply this to you and I today. Simply because we both have and hear the Word of God does not mean that we, are, that we have obtained eternal life. Just because you hear the Word of God doesn't mean, doesn't mean you got eternal life. It doesn't. A day of judgment will one day be at hand. The secrets of each and every one will be brought out. Secret sins will be punished and hidden things will be exposed. You know who's going to do that? Not you or I. God will do that. I have this final thought. 
In Acts 17, 31, we are told, it's, quote, because he has fixed a day, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M-A-N, not lowercase M-A-N, but capital M-A-N, whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The judgment of that day to come will be placed into the hands of Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will be the great judge. The very proof of his resurrection is of historical record. By the way, listen, historical record. People deny the resurrection of Christ. You, are you aware that there are over 500 people? Five, over 500. If you had 500 witnesses attesting to what you said or did, if you had 500 people, listen, you'd, you'd be awarded the case. There are over 500 people that saw Jesus Christ alive after he was crucified and risen from the dead. Over 500. Including Paul himself. And he attests to this fact of his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. I'll not read that for you, but you can read that. He, he writes about that. In spite of these witnesses, many have dismissed and denied this evidence. They who do not believe will be cast into a place. Listen, the person who does not believe has put his or her trust into Jesus Christ. Does not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully. Will be cast into a place of eternal torment forever and ever. Revelation 20 and verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Don't ever tell anybody, God will, not throw any, God will not throw anybody into hell. Because you've not read Revelation 20, 15. It says he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, our deliverance from judgment to come is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word, listen, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's just not a matter of hearing. It's a matter of trusting Jesus, that you put your trust into Jesus Christ. Listen, Satan, Satan hears the word of God. Satan knows the word of God. Satan knows that Jesus is God, but he is not saved. He is not saved. Jesus, he is coming to eternal life and does not. The person who puts their trust into Jesus, the person who puts his or her trust into Jesus, does, Jesus does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. I close with these questions. Do you believe that Jesus died bearing your sin and the Father's wrath? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus was buried on, and on the third day rose from the dead? Do you believe that? Do you today, do you today place your trust into Him as your Lord and your Savior? It's just not believing that Jesus died and Jesus rose again, but it's a matter of believing that and putting your trust into the fact that Jesus Christ is God.
and trusting him, yielding to him your life. Would you do that today? If you've not done that before, would you do that today? I cannot save you. This church cannot save you. Being baptized cannot save you. Going to Sunday school cannot save you. Being involved in ministry cannot save you. Being a pastor cannot save you. Being a deacon cannot save you. Being a committee person cannot save you. Being nice to people cannot save you. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, would you yield your life over to him? Let's pray. Father, we, we trust you, we trust your word. Father, your word is perfect in every way. It does not lead astray. And Father, the only way you can possibly forgive us is because you have punished one who is perfect in every way. Now, Lord, enlighten our hearts and minds to understand and know your truth. And Father, if, as, as you so will, Father, bring those to you whom you've already determined to be your child. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.